Hey everyone, welcome back to Is There Anything Else I Can Help You With? The podcast about creating, managing, and improving your customer service or customer experience systems. As always, you can reach me at david at gettheedge.com. That's david at g-e-t-t-h-e-e-d-g.com. And I would most appreciate if you could show some love by following or subscribing to this podcast on whichever your favorite platform is, like Spotify, Apple, or Google, or others. Actually, I've been amazed with the response so far, and it's been a couple of weeks since the last episode was released, so I'm excited to start talking about this particular topic today. And so we're going to get a little bit controversial because I'm going to throw out a topic that is normally considered safe and not that controversial. And I'm going to turn it on its head today and hopefully inspire you to take a good look at your own programs and hopefully rethink. I'm talking about quality assurance as it pertains to a customer experience interaction, or as we in the game call it, QA. Now, like I said, this is going to be controversial for me because I'm an operational geek and I just think so many organizations have it wrong. There's many definitions and there are so many iterations of what QA can look like. And there's platforms out there like Nice to help make it easy. And there's some great companies out there to help you improve your quality like Zacoustic and other platforms like Medalia um, and Stella to help you manage your quality. And if you're looking for other recommendations, feel free to reach out to me by email. I'm not going to name them here. Uh, But before you get to the point where you can launch and maintain and evolve your QA program, you need to make sure you're thinking about it in a way that will meet the need of what you want it to do for your business. There's no pro forma way to do QA today. And in fact, if you're using something close to that, the question I would have is, When was the last time you felt a positive impact on your customers through your QA program alone? QA programs are an investment in your experience in a similar way that training is an investment in knowledge and workforce management is an investment in safeguarding timely delivery of experiences. The program is likely viewed as an added cost to your bottom line, and so it is one of those customer experience system elements that could be viewed as more nice to have than must have. That is, if you even have one. It's entirely possible that it doesn't exist either yet or at all in your organization. But look, I'm here to tell you that they are a critical function and you should have one. But the goal is to get something truly valuable from it. Too often, I see programs that check some boxes cost a significant amount of money annually, but at the end of the day, the outcomes don't move the needle in the key metrics they're intended to impact. In cases such as these, I would actually agree that maybe you shouldn't have one if this is all you intend to get from it. If you don't have a plan on what you're measuring, how it should impact improvements at both the agent level and for your program, then what are you really accomplishing with the QA function at all? QA programs tend to have ratios like one QA for about 40 frontline agents. So if you have 500 agents for your program, it means you're likely falling in the range of having anywhere from 12 to 15 QA analysts plus a team lead for the group. It's not an inconsequential investment of money, so it should be important for you to think about getting the ROI on that investment. So what I'm saying is don't do QA for the sake of checking a box. Let's add some context to describe what I'm talking about here. I've I've worked in a couple of companies where this was actually the reality. One specific example is that the company's goal was to maximize net promoter score. 
All the reporting had changed to it. The entire company had adjusted from a customer satisfaction measurement to net promoter over the course of the the previous months. It's a different goal for experience. Now, instead of a general and possibly generic CSAT outcome, the company was specifically looking to delight their customers through higher numbers of promoters and to reduce their detractors. The QA program was not included in this change, and so they continued to operate as it had been on a percentage scale outcome basis, where their program simply started at 100 as a score and then every QA markdown reduced that. The average score was well above 95%, and everyone thought, great, QA of our interaction shows our experiences must be amazing. Well, truth is, they were not, and it certainly wasn't being helped by the QA program. At the time, the QA form itself was a 63-question compendium, and even subsequent reductions down to 35-plus questions still had no real tangible impact on experience. One thing it did do was ensure we had very strong performance in the regulatory compliance area. That was one area where the program was actually doing very well. But that was more of an indirect benefit for customers. And it was actually a more direct benefit for the regulatory process health for the company. And I'm not saying by any means that this wasn't important. Of course it is. But it it was always considered an ancillary aspect to QA itself, not the primary focus. And at some point, you make the realization that the NPS outcomes aren't matching what you see in the QA scores. Everyone's scratching their head saying, wait, why is my QA score at an almost perfect 98%, yet the NPS results are not almost perfect too? So this is what we're going to discuss today. Both how you can think about setting up an effective QA program that really does align with your customers' needs, as well as those of the business. Let's start first by further defining QA. There are a couple of types here, but I mostly think about quality assurance and quality control. Assurance I would define as, through sampling, I can be reasonably assured that is reflective of the actual customer experience customers are getting. There are sampling ratios and methodologies that weigh in here, but high level is that you're sampling only a smallish, statistically significant portion of the total interactions out there. Opinions vary on the sample size you should measure. You can use an absolute number. You can use a confidence level like 95.5 or just follow some industry standards. But look, if you have a voice agent that handles about 1,000 calls per month, some industry guidance might be four to five samples per week. That means you're not listening to all calls, but just a 20 to 25 out of that 1,000. Assurance means that assessing the 25 samples would reasonably get me to an understanding of the agent's ability. There's plenty of sample size recommendations out there. I'm not going to say one is better than the other. Each has its own justification, and it's up to you as a program owner to define and justify. That's, That's just QA. On the other side is quality control. Control is a much stricter understanding of the transaction or interaction outcome. And I use the interpretation that says quality control is a 100% review process. This is a much tougher and higher standard, and it's used when, say, the risk of the work is higher. For example, if you're in a highly regulated sales world, you might want to review every transaction or sale that happens in order to ensure compliance with regulations. Perhaps the term control or quality control is not used, something maybe like sales verification. 
I find control more popular for back office or non-customer facing processes outside of sales where the risk is high to the business. But I also might think about a higher standard of QA in, say, social media work where visibility is not one-to-one, but one-to-a-million, or in our world today, maybe one-to-one billion, and you need to have it done right the first time. Anyway, most of what we'll discuss now, however, is quality assurance. You can also apply it to quality control, but I'm more customer-focused, and so that's the default here. And let me say one other thing about QA that is my own perspective, and I find it helpful for me to understand the power of quality assurance. Quality assurance is a measurement of history. It's already happened. The conversation is over. The email has gone out. From this vantage point, QA can be a guide to help you understand the weaknesses at the agent and team level or the effectiveness of your process, but it can't help you during the interaction itself. For me, this means that QA cannot be a substitute for more on-the-job coaching, which might even include in-the-moment coaching. There are too many high expectations that QA plays a role in the day-to-day outcomes and more timely, but because in many cases companies are not doing real-time QA but reviewing interactions from the past week or the past month, then it's not going to have the same impact as other types of agent improvement opportunities. In fact, your QA report will likely be written by someone who is doing this in bulk due to productivity expectations. In some cases, it's not even done in the same building where the agent sits. It might be delivered either electronically or, as I would expect to be closer to the norm, by the agent's TL during their next one-on-one session who had no role in writing the report itself. If it's a few days after the interaction actually happened, are we really convinced that the agent will even remember the conversation to believe that a written report with a few comments from a long form will have a meaningful impact? Okay, look, this may seem like a whole lot of Debbie Downing here, but this is why I'm suggesting you take a look at the reality of your program today in your organization and ask yourselves the following questions. How much am I paying for this QA function? Do you have misalignment between the outcomes of QA and moving any sentiment metrics? When was the last time you made any changes to the fundamentals of the program? By that, I don't mean minor changes to reflect in a policy change in your customer service program. I'm actually talking about a change to the process of QA. Um, If you have a BPO working alongside your internal, are they aligned to the outcomes you need specifically for your business, or is the BPO using their own template? And maybe lastly, is it aligned to the goals of my organization? And more importantly, how do I know it is? This last question is super important for me, and you should understand how your QA is actually driving the right results. Specifically, which components of your QA program are doing the driving? If you have listened to one of the previous episodes where we talked about drivers versus outcomes, you'll know that I don't want to chase the outcome, I want to drive towards it understanding what goes into my hero metric and then build back from there. If your company has updated its targets and KPIs and you haven't reflected that in your QA program, maybe it's time to look at it. And so let's tease this out a little bit and have a debate, a debate of one. I think a great QA program would be made up of a few key sections, and this is how I think about it. If you have hygiene metrics, such as a regulatory compliance metric, make sure it's there but don't go overboard on questions. 
Compliance, it's a binary outcome. It's either a yes or it's a no for compliance. Why do you need to ask it more than one time in a form? An agent is not going to think any differently about a form that has five questions than one question. At the end of the day, they know they have passed or failed the regulatory check in their interaction by looking at the form. They don't need to be told five times. If you have a business process and want to make sure the agents follow a prescribed flow, again, realistically, we're really talking about a yes or no outcome here. If it's yes, great. Let's move on to other areas that might be more impactful. If no, then indicate the step or steps they need to improve. Then there should be a section in the form that is geared specifically towards your key outcomes, whether it's CSAT, NPS, whatever thumbs up or down formula you use. Have your form reflect the most important things that should be observed in the interaction that will help drive a really great outcome, and that will help the agents. And then lastly, something I think about a lot is how can we have a section that provides an opportunity for the QA assessor to give feedback on the process itself, not even agent related? Ask questions like, if I were the customer, do I think this process is easy? Was I able to get my issue solved within this interaction and therefore reduce my effort as a customer? Most importantly, what feedback would I have on the process so we can expand the impact of the QA to that of the process owner side. You know what? QA shouldn't only be about agents, because at the end of the day, then it becomes easy to place 100% of the blame for poor outcomes on the front line. And process owners, not only do they get a pass on improving their process and potentially, you know, bad process, they're missing out on valuable feedback on how they can implement change. If you extend this thinking, then the downstream impact of this is that agents will default to delivering far less customer centricity in their interactions, and they will tend towards process compliance. And look, why is that? Let's take a moment to think about the agent experience in all of this. I'm not going to use any data here to suggest how many companies use uh, QA as a stick for agent incentives, but you know, I think this is common sense if we take a moment and think about the front line. Most BPOs that I've worked with have incentives for agents. It's a great way to drive outcomes, and it's an industry standard element in an incentive program. Agents make modest compensation today, which raises the importance level of qualifying for incentives. I've seen cases where as much as 20 to 25% of an agent's compensation can be earned through a very healthy month of meeting all metrics, and generally speaking, the QA score will be one of them. And listen, let me digress for a bit and say that the stick for agents can be incredibly impactful if it's a regulatory miss that might impact a BPO-level risk and reward program. If I were an agent and knew that QA adherence was going to increase my chance of of earning an incentive, I would do exactly as the form tells me to do. In a balancing act of caring for customer and process over caring for feeding my family, which do you believe the agents will skew toward? This is no comment on the agents themselves not caring about customers. It's actually more conflicting for them than you might even realize. I remember one particular escalation that came my way from an executive where there were a series of unfortunate interactions that frustrated a customer because it just seemed like the agents weren't understanding the issue and the responses seemed to miss out the most important part each time. 
Luckily, I happened to be on site when the escalation happened, um, and there were six individuals involved in the interactions that all worked at that site. Look, when you read the customer request, it really seemed relatively easy to fix. The customer wanted money back. It was clear from the description that it should happen, yet six individuals made the same decision that was counter to the customer's ask. The business owner and I were both on site, and he looked at me and said, what's the problem here? Why are the agents all making exactly the wrong decision? The language is slightly more colorful than that, but I'm trying to keep my PG rating here, so bear with me. I immediately said, look, my my bet it's a QA thing. And he said, no way, this just is a wrong decision. Maybe we don't have the right site and the right agent profile. So listen, we were able to have all six individuals in a focus group the next day, along with QA and the team leaders for the agents themselves. I was all set to hear exactly what I thought was coming. So the first question I asked of the group was, Tell me what the customer wanted. All six individuals said exactly the same thing. The customer wanted his money back. And so, of course, my next question was, well, why didn't you just do that? And so the answer was, well, the instructions didn't allow for me to do that. They told me I had to do it a different way. I said, but if you knew it was not the right thing, then why not do the right thing? And the answer that came back was, well, that would mean I would get a QA markdown and it would impact my incentive. And then I said to the TLs, could they just not raise the hand and say, can I do this and go off process and bring this to to the company's attention? And the answer was, well, it will still get a markdown from a QA function somewhere. And then I will need to increase the amount of time I spend doing call listening and my own QA forms for the agent for the next 30 days. So after I completed my told you so dance to my colleague, we looked through the procedures and you know what? In fact, there was an error in the procedures themselves. The agent followed process to the T, even though they knew it was wrong. The TLs wanted no part of a potential markdown because of the increase of management burden it would cost them. And who can blame them? But flip that thinking for a sec, and let's true back to the point I was making about having a section in your form for process feedback. How different could the business be if instead of penalizing someone for doing the right thing, that we actually have a process through which a suggestion could come to the process team to fix a broken document, the agent could just actually do the right thing, and then we use this form to reward the agent and the team lead for helping to create a broken process. And that would be a mind-blown emoji time. Also, this last point about feedback should make you think about how the ROI on your QA program has just increased dramatically and now internal customers have mind shifts on accountability for process and how agents can positively contribute to outcomes than being the ones who are blamed month over month. You could even take that one step further for your vendor contracts and think about how you might want to structure your risk and reward clauses themselves to incent the BPO to increase the percentage of do the right thing actions. Plenty to think about on that one. All right, but let's pivot to the last suggestion I have on this subject today. So far, we've talked about how to get more ROI from the program, making sure you're designing a program that's tied to your organization's goals and not just a cookie cutter program, and understanding how agents view QA and the potential downsides to an inflexible program. We also talked about how QA should drive great interactions and not just be a his- an historical perspective. In a great dynamic program, two other things come to mind for me. 
First, you should proportion some of the allocation of QA resources to help focus on agents who may need more attention to learn or overcome some areas of improvement. What I mean by this is something that I learned from a very knowledgeable colleague of mine, and it's called trending. Think about how each month you can double down on driving a more consistent outcome for your customer service program across the board if you identified a certain number of individuals each month and did a focused session of assessments that represented an outsized sample for them. And let me just tell you what that might look like. Say, for example, you have a program that is 250 frontline agents in a phone program. The number doesn't really matter. If the average agent takes 50 calls a day, you might end up with a sample uh, where some agents get one, maybe two assessments in a month, and it's actually highly possible that some may not even get even one sample. A trending program here might be might look like this. You take 20 of those 250 agents and do 25 samples on each of the 20. Think of the amount of impact that listening to 25 calls in a row to understand the quality might provide a much more useful and impactful list of opportunities for the agent. Or, you hear a consistent opportunity in each call that can be addressed that you may just not see in one sample. It's far easier to get your agent to understand how much of an opportunity it is if you only have one sample call that they just might think is an outlier. Take this one step further and think about your overall program. What is it that you're hearing from all agents that you'd like to change? How about doing a trending analysis on some key metric that's driving effort for customers? And let me just give you an easy example here to illustrate. Say, for instance, you note that your hold time has become excessive and you're trying to figure out what's going on across the board. How about changing up that fourth section we described here to focus on hold time for everyone? Maybe you'll learn that in a particular contact type, the agents are having difficulty finding a knowledge management article to help them, or it's a consistent gap where they need to escalate and ask questions. But really, if you just provide easy-to-find info or possibly change the process, then you could impact your metric holistically rather than agent by agent. There's just so many ways that you can use your QA that I just don't believe is, is being done today. And look, I've held contact type sessions on with specific BPO leadership teams and, and TLs where we listen to only one contact type for a whole day that, you know, this particular contact type might drive a lot of volume and have a big impact on CSAT. And so what we do is we'll spend the morning listening to low performing agents at first to see what we can learn from why it might look low. And then we'll flip it over in the afternoon, listen to a series of great performers on the same contact type, and then contrast and compare why one agent gets a low score and the next gets a top score for the same situation. There's plenty to learn from that. The last thing I'm going to leave you with today, because look, this has been really fun for me. It's a complicated topic and can be hugely impactful for your business and for your agents. And look, I could go on for hours on this topic. The last thing is the design of the QA program itself. And this is a bit of a teaser. Who should really be involved in designing that QA program? Should it just be your QA team? Perhaps some of the other customer service folks? You know, there's plenty of inputs that go into delivering a great product or service, and it's not relegated to the customer service team alone. Shouldn't you think maybe about bringing in program owners, maybe a marketing research team, product owners, maybe even some customers? Why does QA seem to be solely a customer service responsibility to design today? 
Anyhow, as always, thank you for listening. I love this topic, and I would love to hear from you on this as well. I've actually been thinking about perhaps doing a clubhouse chat on this specific topic, and I'll give it some thought, but if you want to debate this, I'm always down for a great discussion, and I'll look for your thoughts on this. I myself can be opinionated, but there's plenty of great ideas and other experts out there that could create a pretty cool event here. If you want to just ask some questions directly to me, you know you can reach me at david at gettheedge.com anytime, and we can connect. Again, I really appreciate the support for this podcast. I, again, continue to be amazed when I see the downloads and and the follows. And if you haven't yet, please follow on Spotify or Apple or other platforms so you can be notified of the next episode to come. I hope you enjoyed this particular rant of mine today and that you take a pause and maybe I've influenced you to think about examining your own QA program. And with that, I'm going to let you get back to your day. Have a great one, everyone. Speak to you soon.